We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Okay, midrash time. Any uh, any like questions or thoughts or comments lingering from last time? You're still uh, you're still unhappy about the uh, about the possibility that uh, that the Torah may have. Uh, pre-existed or predated God. Right. You know, the, the problem, the problem with uh, with with what you brought compared to what the midrash says is, I mean, I, I'm cer- I certainly think it's plausible, right, that God created the Torah and then created the world, but the midrash seems to imply that the Torah contains a body of knowledge that is uh, that is um, uh, uh, outside the sphere of knowledge of God. Right, so like it has this analogy that God is the king, and when the king wants to build a palace, yeah. uh, the king turns to an architect, uh, and the architect turns to you know turns to blueprints and and other experts. Okay, so it says the Torah is the architect, but if God created the, how could that be? If God created the Torah uh, and, and the Torah is the architect, like it doesn't seem to make sense, right? Uh, it like. Uh, that passage only makes sense if the Torah somehow separate from God was created independently of God contains information that is that that's new information to God in some way. Um, anyway, uh, it may you know uh, uh, that may not be the only way of looking at it. But um, all right. But then we we uh, any other thoughts or comments or questions? Well, um, I guess my question would be if the Torah was already in existence. After the flood, uh, God gave Noah, I think, seven commandments. Mm-hmm. Since the purpose of the flood was kind of to reset the world, why wouldn't God have just given the Torah to Noah at that time, rather than waiting till you know all these generations to sign on? Yeah. Uh, so I don't. I mean, I don't have a definitive answer to that question. I think it's. I think the question is more interesting than 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 you know uh, any answer I could give. I think that uh, you know, uh, a, a classical Jewish answer would be that the Torah was always meant to be reserved for the Jewish people. Um, so that's one way of you know. And the Torah uh, is. Um, is a is a covenant between God and a nation, right? Not a, not God and an individual, which is what it would be with Noah. Um, I think that to me, it, it, you know, I, I often look at the look at the uh, uh, at these early stories of the Bible in a way, and this might be heretical, but I'm not sure if it is according to the midrash heretical um, to say that uh, that um, that the process of creation was an ongoing learning process for God, right? So that seems like the impression I get from this first Midrash is that, um, is that there, there are things about creating that God does not yet know. Um, 
And so, you know, in this case, God looks to the Torah for, right? So if you think about it that way, it may, I mean, it makes sense, right? Uh, God, uh, God repents of having created humanity, uh, which is why God sends the flood. And well, God that is all-knowing and can predict the future uh, uh, wouldn't need to repent of having created humanity. We would have had to have known that that was exactly how it was going to turn out. So the only, I think, the only uh, um, uh, reasonable solution to that problem is to say that at least according to the, it may be true that God knows everything, but according to the Bible's understanding of God, God doesn't know everything, and God learns as God goes. So God may have thought, you know, that that the world was going to work a certain way. Uh, uh, The, you know, the sin in the Garden of Eden proved that it wasn't going to work that way. Uh, and so God kind of like, you know, adjusted things, you know, uh, made humanity, uh, toil for their bread and all those sort of things, you know, whatever. Right. Um, and that was fine until Cain and Abel and Cain and Abel happened a certain way. And so God had to course correct there too, and, uh, prohibit murder. Uh, but I guess God didn't prohibit enough things. Right. And, and humanity still kind of, uh, perpetuated in a certain way. So God said, well, maybe the problem is hu- human beings, uh, or maybe the problem is these human beings. Maybe I should just start over, but it didn't work well when I like wiped out, ev- when, when there was no human beings and I created a human being from the dust of the earth. So I'm going to like wipe everybody out except for one human being and try to repopulate from him, from like the good genes, right? And I'm going to repopulate from the good genes. Um, and, uh, and, <laughs> right, right. Divine eugenics. And that, and that didn't work so well either. Um, and, and so you get to Abraham where God, I, you could, I think make an argument saying, okay, uh, 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 wiping out the bad people and restarting from the good people do, don't, doesn't work. So let me try uh, using uh, a, a good person and his progeny as an influence for the rest of humanity, right? So for, for one nation to be, uh, to, to set a moral example for how the rest of uh, humanity should behave, let me try that, right? Um, and, uh, uh, and, and the Torah is sort of the culmination of that process, the formalization of that process. Um, so anyway, I, I, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not sure that that's the right answer. Uh, but, uh, but, but there is something compelling about that to me that, um, uh, that, that, that God, um, you know, that God is also in process, that God also has a process of discovery and, uh, and, and failure and, uh, revision and plan B. Uh, I find that really encouraging, right? That, that, the, that even God fails, Right, uh, the, we say like nobody's perfect except for God. I'm not so sure that 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 God is perfect either, right? At least according to the Bible. Um, so, uh, uh, especially if perfect means you know unchanging and uh, and and uh, and um, and never makes a mistake. So, anyway, um, uh, I think that that's uh, I think that that's that that's that that's encouraging to me, right? As a as a flawed human being. Um, any other comments or thoughts before we move on? No, I think it's interesting because you you, you get all the way to the to, to right now and what you just said about the sexual issues that mm-hmm. we're having and how many of those people are Jews. So we're, right. no, I, I, it just keeps going and somehow um, it it it's built in because it's our nature. I, I don't really know, but I 
And I do remember when I was teaching youngsters that that was something that I always tried to bring up with some of the early Bible stories. Mm -hmm. It wasn't perfect. They weren't perfect. We right. might either, but we have to kind of right. try. Right. So, you know, it's, it's a dilemma. <laughs> yeah. Really yeah. Um, okay. All right. Well, let's uh, um, let's let's go on to uh, the second midrash. Okay. We we started to look at this a little bit last time. Um, someone from uh, uh, cyberspace um, says, uh, um, "If God is not perfect, if God is not perfection, why do we need Him or Her?" No, 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 I'm just reading. Someone, someone sent me that question. Uh, from, from the cyber from, 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 Yeah, from from, uh, from the Facebook Live. And then another person, so one person asked, if God is not perfection, why do we need him or her? And another person said, if God, is God trying to become perfect, and are we here to help him uh, or her in becoming perfect? I would say if God is not perfect, her example of working towards perfection is an example to us. Right. Yeah, I, I, I like that. Um, I, I might say something similar to that. Um, and then the other question is God trying to become perfect and are we here to help her do that? Um, I think that, that the answer to that might also be yes for a related reason, right? That, that God, uh, God creates human beings uh, to, uh, to, to be a partner in the work of creation. To, right? I mean, you know, uh, our tradition ha holds that, right? That, uh, that, that, that human beings are, are uh, responsible for tikkun olam, Right? and for uh, uh, helping the world become what God envisioned the world to be. Right? God maybe God deliberately created an imperfect world, or just by the nature of God's own limitations created an imperfect world, and created us to, to partner with God to make the world better. And if you think, like I do, that, um, that when we talk about the world and perfecting the world, that we're also in some way talking about God, because God... Uh, is both synonymous with creation and transcends creation. Right? When we talk about repairing the world, we're also talking about repairing God. Uh, so, it, so in that regard, to, to the question, you know, is God trying to become perfect, and are we here to help her? Um, I would say the answer is yeah. Or maybe Hashem is perfect, but sometimes deliberately makes mistakes, so we won't feel that our faults are insurmountable. Could be. Could be. Sort of to encourage us that, okay, I made a mistake, but anyone can. So. Right. And God, so. Right. I just, and something else popped in my head. I mean, the question of, you know, if God's not perfect, then why do we need God? Uh, uh, it, it strikes me that that's actually kind of, uh, I don't mean that the person asking it is ridiculous, but it strikes me as kind of a ridiculous question. Um, because I need my wife, even though she's not perfect, right? I need my, I need your friendship, even though you're not perfect. I need other, I need, I need to rely on other uh, people and things that are that are inherently imperfect. I rely on this chair. This chair is imperfect, but it's holding up my tush okay for now, right? Um, until it doesn't anymore, and then I need a new chair. Uh, we rely on all, you know. Sometimes all you have to rely on are imperfect things, and uh, they're better than relying on nothing. Right. And I guess the goal is to to work to the good 
and maybe even in God's imperfection, you know, that that's what we on our own would have. So. Yeah. All right, let's look at Midrash number two. So I'm on, I, I, I regret that these pages aren't numbered, but I'm on the second page. Okay, so, in, and for those of you in cyberspace, if you're following along, uh, we're at the uh, uh, second Midrash of the first chapter of Genesis Rabbah. Uh, it starts with Rabbi Yehoshua de Sichnin. Uh, Rabbi Yehoshua of Sichnin. Uh, opened in the name of Rabbi Levi, okay? Uh, so just as a reminder about how uh, a lot of this type of Midrash works, when it says it opened, um, these were likely to have been um, uh, sermons on Shabbat morning. Uh, and uh, the what was common back then is, uh, is that you didn't start by talking about the parasha, uh, you started by talking about something that like seems to have no relation to the parsha because the game was you know how is he going to connect the dots to the parsha um, and uh, so we can think about that as as we go on but I mean we know because this is uh, uh, in in Breshit Rabbah that it's going to connect and because it's the beginning of Breshit Rabbah it's going to connect somehow to the opening verses of uh, of, of Genesis. Okay. Well, the whole collection was compiled around the year 450 of the Common Era. Um, I, I, when this one was in particular, I don't know, because um, I don't know. I don't know who, uh, offhand who Rabbi Yoshua of Sichlin was, uh, and I don't know which Rabbi Levi he's quoting here. Um, so anyway, um, but Nancy, do you want to start us off by reading? Tehillim is the book of Psalms. Psalms. The power of his works he told to his people, Israel. Why did Hashem reveal to Israel that which was first, that which was created on the first day and the second day, and so forth? What's interesting there, but just just to stop you for a second, uh, is that the translation for some reason doesn't uh, give us the translation of the whole verse, uh, but the Hebrew has the whole verse. So the Hebrew is Koach Masav Higidlamo. Which is uh, the the uh, the power of of his works he told to his people, la tet lahem nachalat goyim to give to them the inheritance of the nations. And the rest is yeah. So then, so good, why did Hashem go ahead? Why did Hashem reveal to Israel that which was created on the first day and the second day and so forth because of the idolaters? So, so it, it, it brings in that the end of the verse here at the end because that's sort of the the punchline that he's giving. Okay, um, who think who can explain what's what's happening in this midrash? Rabbi. 
Okay, someone's asking, why did Hashem tell the Israelites or what the order of creation? Like, I mean, we didn't need to know that. Right. Good. Okay. Right. So why why does why does the Torah begin with the with with the order of creation? Right. Why does it say that uh, you know this happened on day one and this happened on day two and day three, etc.? Maybe to emphasize that we don't own them. That we don't own creation. Mm. The trees, the land, the water. We don't. We we might think we own things, but really we're just using them tra- in a transitory manner because that you know. Right. The trees will be here after I'm dead, so they're really not mine. Right. So you have that line here in the Midrash. In the Hebrew it says, Ha'olam umlo'o shal hakadosh baruchu. Right? The world and all it contains uh, is, uh, belongs to the Holy Blessed One. Right? So I think you're right. I think that that is the, the, the force of, of this, right? That the, uh, that the Torah starts with the works of creation, the days of creation, um, to emphasize uh, that uh, that the world belongs to God, but there's um, uh, but there's another kind of level to this midrash that is saying, okay, so so why is that why is that important to say that the world belongs to God according to the according to Rabbi Yoshua of Sichnin? Okay, good, right? So the, the, God made it. God can give it to whoever God wants, and God can take it away from whoever God wants. And, and specifically, um, uh, who, uh, who does the Midrash care uh, about God uh, having given something to or not given something to? Israel. Israel, good. Good, right? So, um, so think about this for a second, okay? And it's actually it's, it's a... a, a, a in some ways a relevant passage, but I think in, in, in other ways deceptively, rele- uh, deceptively irrelevant passage, okay? Because uh, basically what it says is, you know, the, um, uh, the, tor- the, the, uh, the trajectory of the Torah is uh, the, the, um, the march of the children of Israel from, uh, from Egypt to the Promised Land, uh, the land that they'll ultimately conquer and uh, dwell in that was promised to them by God. But it's anticipating a challenge to to uh, the Israelites living in Israel, right? For uh, for people to come and say, um, "Are you not a nation of thieves?" Right? You, it's this is not your land. You took it by the sword. See why it's a uh, why it's in some ways a very relevant passage. I, I I wasn't right, so uh, uh, but I but I heard a little bit about it. Rabbi Kreder was talking about it uh, the next day. Yeah. So this, uh, were these written during the exile, the Babylonian right. exile, when no, they were written? They were moved, or were they written while they were still? In? Um, they were written. So, if you're talking about the original Babylonian exile, which was uh, after the destruction of the first temple in 586 BCE, these were not written then. They were written much later. Um, they had experienced an ex- being removed from the land. Right. Yes. So that was to them a realistic. Yeah. That that would happen. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's unclear historically 
where when this was written. Uh, you know, it could have been written in a time of uh, of, uh, of 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 Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel, like maybe during the Maccabean period, but probably not. It's probably much later than that. Uh, my guess is it was it was written at a time when um, when there were still a lot of Jews living in the land of Israel. Um, you know, around around the year 450, the two the two major centers of Jewish life were uh, were Babylonia. Um, this is like I don't know if you call it the second Babylonian exile, but uh, but um, a, a lot of Jews lived in Babylonia at the time. So how you get the Babylonian Talmud? Uh, was that still, or was that? Well, a combination. So there were there were Jews. So in 586 BCE, the temples destroyed, and uh, um, the uh, uh, aristocracy and the priesthood are exiled to Babylonia. Um, in, around the year uh, 530, give or take a couple years, um, the Persians conquer Babylon and allow the Jews to return to the land of Israel and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But a lot of Jews stayed in Babylonia. Uh, which is how ultimately you get the Purim story, because there are Jews still living in, in Babylonia, which becomes Persia. Um, and, uh, and that's really the origins of the diaspora, because it's, the, it's really the first time there's uh, such a thing as, as Jews living outside the, the land of Israel, and, and, and in some cases by choice, right? They decided to stay in Persia. Um, and so there, were, there, were, there was a, Jew, a, a flourishing Jewish community in, in Persia, um, uh, which uh, uh, I don't know all the geopolitics of it, but uh, but I guess at some point like became referred to as Babylonia again, or maybe never stopped being referred to as Babylonia. Anyway, um, but so there were there were Jewish communities kind of all over the place there, but but primarily in in two cities called Sura and Pumpadita. Um and those were major Jewish population centers in Babylonia. But then. Um, there was concurrently uh, a you know, large Jewish community in the land of Israel, which you know, uh, fl- which grew and and flourished uh, through the through the first Greek period and then the Roman period um, until the destruction of the Second Temple. But the destruction of the Second Temple didn't really uh, end uh, Jewish life in in the land of Israel, um, just primarily in Jerusalem. But there were, you know, Jewish uh, communities all over the land of Israel, especially in, in um, uh, first Yavne, uh, and then uh, Tsipores, Sephoris, um, Sfat, I mean, you know, in the northern parts of Israel. So, uh, um, so anyway, uh, there were, so the, uh, you're still probably at this time in an era in which one of the two major Jewish population centers in the world was the land of Israel. So it's a relevant question for them because they could say, you know, you're living there, uh, and, uh, and they, you know, like lay claim to that land and, and Romans may be saying to them, you, you have no more right to be here than we do. Right. Um, uh, because, you know, uh, uh, we conquered it by the sword, and you conquered it by the sword, right? Um, and so, uh, or this could be, you know, uh, uh, after the Jewish population in, in, in the land of Israel had, had really diminished, uh, there's really only a, a significant diaspora, but there's still, you know, present in, in Jewish liturgy and lore, uh, yearning to return to that. Ultimately, we're going to be restored to the land. 
So it's still a live question of, you know, okay, so when we're restored to the land and reestablish sovereignty there, uh, people are going to say to us, uh, you are a nation of thieves, right? Um, and they still, and they, and they still, and they still do, and they still do. So, um, uh, but I, but I do think that actually, there, so there's, there, uh, it's, it, uh, um, so what's the answer that it gives to that question? It's still their inheritance. Whose inheritance? Um, Israel. Okay, why? Right, because 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 they've been told that from the beginning that it's their inheritance. Well, right, David, say what you said again. Because Hashem gave it. Right, because God gave it to them. Right, so so it, so the answer it gives is God starts with the creation of the world to establish God's ownership of the world in order to show that God uh, that that God can. Uh, grant whatever land God wants to whomever God wants. The, the the other implication, by the way, is that God can take it away from whoever God wants, which is something that, you know, as we talk about uh, the Jewish right to live in the land of Israel, what we don't often talk about is the fact that uh, we've never really resolved in our tradition the fact that, um, uh, that, that uh, God pretty explicitly takes the land away from us uh, and has not yet... Uh, um, uh, <laughs> in a clear way, told us that God has restored that land to us. I know. Uh, and listen, you know, I, I got to grant them this, that like they, maybe, um, well, but that would be, listen, Uganda would be a similar problem. Why, 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 why do we have claim to Uganda? Um, uh, now, uh, it, but what this also, I think, shows to me is, uh, you know, if, if the world is God's, um, and therefore, uh, doesn't really belong to any of us. Okay. Um, that means, uh, that I think has implications for how we define and construct our borders and who we allow in to, uh, our, our you know, our countries and who we don't allow in. Um, why, why is it our decision to, you know, uh, who gets to live in Richmond and who doesn't get to live in Richmond, right? If Richmond belongs to God, not to us, right? Or Israel for that matter, right? Why is it, why is it the Israeli government's decision uh, that, uh, that, that, you know, this Arab can be a citizen and that Arab can't be a citizen? I don't have answers to that question. Um, it, it, but, uh, but it, and it also, you know, uh, I think, uh, has implications for how we, how we use the world, right? How we use the, the natural resources, the world, right? This is, this is, this earth is not ours, right? So clearly we have the capability of utilizing it, right? We're not put on this earth to not be able, it would be a pretty cruel joke if we were put on this earth, but not allowed to use anything on the earth, um, which is why Judaism is, uh, I think, you, you know, we would have a, a lot of disagreement with like, you know, Jane type traditions that, that, um, that really try to avoid um, any unsettling of the natural world and, and the taking of any life whatsoever. Um, 
you know, uh, you know, at the very least, Judaism says that you can take plant life, right, and uh, cut down trees for your use and things like that. But we're not allowed to waste, and we're not allowed to, um, you know, sell the land beyond reclaim, you know, both literally and figuratively. We can't use the land in such a way that it can't be used by anybody else uh, because it doesn't belong to any of us individually or collectively. Um, so that's why I say that that it's re this passage is relevant to our situation in in Israel because you know lots of people uh, uh, still make the claim today that Jews have no right to be there. Um, now I'm not sure a compelling argument is, but God gave us the right to be there. Um, I remember uh, it, when I was in college, there was a big pro-Israel rally in Washington D.C. So it was the early 2000s. I don't remember exactly when. I don't remember exactly what was happening in the world. It, must, it had to have been after the Second Intifada, or maybe it was during the Second Intifada. Um, big pro-Israel rally in D.C. And I remember there were signs everywhere that, say, that said, you know, read the Bible. Uh, the land of Israel belongs to the Jews, right? Or God gave the land, read the Bible, God gave the land of Israel to the Jews. And I was like, thought to myself, well, well, then that settles it, doesn't it? Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, it, it doesn't strike me as a, I'll, yeah. Yeah, I'll bet you those signs were put up by evangelical Christians and not Jews. Maybe. I don't know. I, I, I had a feeling that they were put, being put up by, by some ultra-Orthodox yeah. Jews uh, as well, who, are, who have kind of an alliance in that way. Right. Um, you know, so... Uh, uh, so you know, so so if right, so if if you want to make that argument, right, that God gave the land of Israel to the Jews, um, uh, you also have to acknowledge that God took away the land of Israel from the Jews, uh, and and hasn't explicitly given it back. Um, and you also have to acknowledge that uh, that uh, that that the earth belongs to God, and God could possibly give the land to whoever God wanted to. So maybe God changed his mind after the Bible, right? Read the Bible, God gave the land of Israel to Jews. Okay, but maybe, maybe God said to Muslims in the Quran that the land of Israel belongs to you. Right? How do we know? Um, so uh, anyway, I, 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 I thought it was, um, that image has always stuck with me um, because the recourse to biblical inheritance doesn't strike me as a, as a, a good basis for uh, establishing our right to be in the land of Israel, other than to say we have had historical connection to the land, which is true and irrefutable, you know. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that other people don't have historical connection to the land too, and that doesn't mean that our claim is stronger than theirs per se, um, or you, you know, uh, obviates anybody else's uh, claim to sovereignty in the land. Um, and I'm sort of going down a rabbit hole, but... Uh, well, it's been insoluble, and it continues to be insoluble, it seems. So you're only making it more so, in my way to say. I mean, I, yeah. it's the answer, really. Well, I mean, I think that the answer... I think, to me, a text like this suggests that the answer is sharing the land in some way. Um, yeah, to, for me, that would be a, a, a state of Israel alongside a state of Palestine, um, I think that there are probably other models of sharing the land that you could uh, come up with. Uh, you've got two groups. Right. You've got, you got multiple people who want the land. The land doesn't actually belong to either of them. Right? So, um, 
It's, it's like I say to my kids, you know, when they're fighting over toys. Like, the toy doesn't actually belong to you, uh, so why don't I just take the toy away from both of you, you know? Either you've got to figure out how to share it, or nobody's going to be able to play with it. <laughs> uh, you know, like Solomon, cut it, cut cut it, it in right, half, right, right, cut it in half, right. Oh, I should use that for now. I hadn't thought about it. How much therapy will that? Will that cause the it depends on your life? It depends on the that. thing. <laughs> I, I don't know if I would do it to a baby doll, but that claim, um, you know, the the Bible says it belongs to us, reminds me of what we were talking about Saturday at Kiddush about the destruction of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. That you know, people tend to isolate a verse of right. scripture that supports their opinion. Right. Right. Um, right, because they would say God gave the land to us, but they would never remember that God also took it away. Right. Even though we pray it in the Amida on Saturday morning. Right, right. Yeah, because of our yeah, because of our sins, right? From our right. land in the temple. That's right. Um, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Okay, and by the way, uh, so Rashi's first commentary in Genesis, um, just as a curiosity, um, Rashi's first commentary in Genesis, Rashi very often uh, will cite Midrash Rabbah in his commentary. That's, that's very, he kind of tries to like string the narrative of Midrash Rabbah, almost some other Midrashim, but through the text to kind of like fill in the text. And his first uh, comment uh, uh, of Genesis is, why does the Torah start here? Right? And quotes, you know, he asks the question explicitly, right? Why doesn't the Torah start uh, in Exodus with, uh, not even with the story of Exodus, but with the first commandments, you know, which is, I think, um, uh, this month shall be to you the, the you know, beginning of months or something like that. Um, and, and then, you know, answers uh, in order to establish uh, the foundations of, of Torah, which is uh, God's sovereignty and God's ownership of the world, God's right to give you laws in the first place. Other thoughts or questions or comments about this? Doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking That's about. That's fine. We're, we're talking about Midrash Rabbah. Is it that is that the first compilation of Midrash? It's it <clears throat> yeah. So Midrash Rabbah is uh, the earliest compilation of uh, what's known as uh, Midrash Agada, uh, which is you know like homiletical Midrash or, or Midrash uh, about non-legal matters. Um, but there's a couple that sort of imply to you that there's a, a couple of collections of Midrash Halakha that are older. Uh, uh, and in particular, uh, Michilta de Rabbi Ishmael, excuse me, which is um, uh, a, a, a legal commentary on Exodus. Um, legal commentary generally means taking the laws and saying, like, what, you know, what exactly does this law teach? You know, so when it says honor thy father and mother, you know, so what exactly does that mean, right? That's that's what a midrash halacha does, um, and in that case, it's uh, you know um, uh, provide them with food and clothing, and uh, it's interesting because we don't usually think about honor thy father and mother that way, but it 
uh, honor thy father and mother probably refers to caring for elderly parents and not as a child how you relate to your parents. But anyway, um, don't tell my kids that. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Wish my parents had thought that. Um, so that's uh, so Michal to Rabbi Ishmael's one on Exodus. There's a Sifra on, uh, which is a legal commentary on Leviticus, and Sifre, which is a legal commentary on Deuteronomy. Um, so those are all older uh, than uh, I believe than than Midrash Rabbah. But uh, of the of the homiletical Midrashim, uh, Midrash Rabbah is the oldest collection, uh, or gen- rather, I should say, Breshit Rabbah is the oldest. Um, and then um, a couple, uh, one or two of the other Raba collections. I want to say like maybe uh, mm, it's escaping me right now. But a, a couple of the other Raba collections are. Then there's some other ones, uh, Tanhuma and things like that that are after that. There's ultimately there's uh, Midrash Raba for all the Torah. Uh, and some of the other books of the Bible too, but they're not all compiled at the same time. Okay. That help? Yeah. And well, you chose this one. Well, I chose well, I chose I chose Brishi Rava, I guess, partially because it's the it's the first of the homiletical midrashim. Um, I wanted to study some uh, homiletical midrashim, not legal midrashim. Um, I started with Genesis because, I don't know, when we started it was the Parashat of Shavua. <laughs> we're not, you know, we're not going to uh, obviously uh, hew to the weekly portion, but um, that's when I started. Uh, and actually, the honest truth is um, uh, I started writing a, a children's book about, I wanted to write a series of children's books on, on Bible stories. Um, and I started... Uh, with the with the creation narrative, but I actually found it really hard to do um, because it wasn't really compelling as a story, as like a narrative in that way. Um, so uh, so I like ha- I felt like I had to turn to midrash uh, to kind of fill in some things, and you know I didn't want to just make stuff up if I could avoid it. Um, I, I wanted to try to stay as close to the original text as I could, but I like felt like I needed to fill in some like midrash sometimes gives you like character motivations and things like that, like things that you need for a story. Um, and then I was like, okay, well, I, I wrote a draft of that one, and then I was going to move on to the Garden of Eden story, which is even more complicated and difficult to write. You know, like which, which angle are you going to look at that story from? Um, and so I wanted to look at Midrash for it. Uh, so, uh, so I started looking through, and then I decided I was going to do a class on, on Midrash, then I decided, well, why start at the Garden of Eden story? You really got to start at the beginning of Genesis. So, start at the beginning of Genesis. That's a hard, hard thing to do, though, to, to make them into children's stories. Kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine trying to make Sodom and more appropriate for children. It's going to take right, some right, right, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm going to do every story, <laughs> but... Um, and then Lot and his daughters. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, listen, I mean, that, you know, uh, in some ways, ultimately, that story is about, um, uh, is about uh, welcoming strangers and, and protecting immigrants and, uh, you know, uh, um, <laughs> like reading that story last, this past Shabbos yeah. in the context of like what, you know, what, what's happening in our 
culture right now, uh, you know, like, like, like send those, like, cat, you know, get those foreigners out of your house. We want them, you know? Um, anyway, yeah. I could see that happening and then, somewhere and, in modern. And then turning on, and then turning it right, and then turning on Lot and saying like, like, who do you think you are? You're, you're not a native born person either, you know? Yeah. All right. Should we read on a little bit? How about, uh, how about David? Okay, in the beginning? Mm-hmm. In the beginning, God created. Rabbi... Okay, so God. now we know which, which verse, or which part of the verse, ultimately is going to be uh, expounded upon here. Um, again, it's not where Rabbi Tanhuma is going to start, but the editor of the Midrash is kind of helping us out here, because he actually, you can see, he goes on for a long time before he gets back to his point. So I think that's just trying to help us out. Remember that we're still talking about this first verse of, of, of Genesis. In the beginning, God created, Rabbi Tanhuma opened with the verse, Psalms 86.10, For you are great, and you perform wonders. Rabbi Tanhum said, with a pouch, if you puncture a hole in its side with a pin, all its air comes out of it. Whereas the person is made with all kinds of hollows and holes, and his air does not leave his body. Who could make such a thing? You, God, alone. The second half of the verse, when were the angels created? That which, sorry, that, uh, that... That should be a period, okay? So the second half of the verse is uh, Ata Elohim Levadecha, you God alone, right? So the verse is Kigadol Atav Oseniflaot, Ata Elohim Levadecha. We can look at actually the verse if we want uh, in our uh, Tanakh. Let me pull it up in Franklin's here. Uh, so it's Psalms 8610. It's on this one, it's on 1210. It's probably about where it is in here, too. Let's see, 12, 10, 86, 10. Yep, right? Um, so, uh, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, and there are no deeds like yours. Um, which, uh, I don't, uh, but, well, I actually have the Hebrew here, but, um, you know, it sounds to me like, Mikamocha ba'elim Adonai, Mikamocha, right? Um, all the nations you have made will come to bow down before you, O Lord, and they will pay honor to your name. For you are great and perform wonders. You alone are God. Okay? So that's one way of reading the verse. You alone are God. Ata Elohim levadecha. Another way of reading it is uh, like, our, uh, like, like our Midrash reads it, which is uh, Ata you, Elohim, God, levadecha, by yourself. Right? Uh, only you. Um, okay, so, uh, so you are great and you perform wonders. Uh, only you, God, right? You, only you could do such a thing. Um, so what's the particular wonder that uh, the Midrash picks up on? The human body. Yeah, why is that wondrous? Yeah, we 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 have holes, but we're still inflated. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Our insides don't leak out of our mouth. Right, or or other <laughs> orifices. If I, if I turn upside down, my insides aren't going to leak out of my mouth and my nose. Right. Still all over the floor. 
Um, you know, there's a uh, w- uh, what about what what their understanding of human anatomy was and physiology wasn't ours. So no, although I amazing she turned hang upside down and your tummy doesn't spill out of your mouth. Hmm. Well. Yeah, so I mean, I, what I would say is, I, I think that their that their understanding of anatomy and physiology is probably surprisingly um, sophisticated. Um, they didn't know a lot about like you know the modern treatments and things like that because they didn't know about bacteria and viruses and those sort of things. Um, but they knew pretty well how the human body functioned and worked. Uh, I think. Um, uh, but does science have a good explanation? Can science explain to me why human beings have holes, but still have air inside of us? Well, yeah, I mean, your lungs are structured a certain way. You know, there's systems of valves and Uh, membranes and tissues. Yeah. That's why you breathe, you exhale, but mm-hmm. all the air doesn't, you know, go out of your lungs. Right. So, yeah, there, I mean, to a certain extent, there is an explanation. That's a, that's more of a how than a why. Right, than a why. Yeah. Um, but, the, you know, so, uh, but what I, what I take from this is, uh, and Nancy alluded to it. There's uh, the the blessing. There's you know you guys know there's a blessing that we say after you go to the bathroom uh, in the morning and whenever you go to the bathroom. But uh, uh, traditionally, it's it's one of the first things you recite in the morning. Um, it's Asher Yatsar Et Adam. Okay, so Brachat Hashem Elokeinu Melchalam. Asher Yatsar Et Adam, who created a human being. Uh, Uvaravo and uh, and and created in in him nekavim uh, nekavim chalulim chalulim so uh, all sorts of uh, uh, tubes and openings galui uh, right yeah so it's uh, it's readily apparent before you sheim yisatem echad mehem echad mehem right and if one of the things that was Op- that's supposed to be open was closed, yeah. and one of the things that was supposed to be closed was opened. We wouldn't be able to uh, stand before to function to stand before you even for one hour, right? So there is something miraculous about that. The human body functions the way it does. I mean, not just the human body, but but all living life uh, um, functions the way it does. You know, uh, um, you know. Uh, like, I mean, childbirth shows you that too. I mean, like the, the amount of things that could go wrong in childbirth, the process of it. I mean, if people talk about the miracle of childbirth as sort of a cliche, but the reality is such that uh, it's a miracle that anybody is born alive. Uh, you know, it's just like unbelievable. Um, the, you know, and, and that's just the human body, right? The, the, you know, the, the, the interconnection of uh, ecological systems on the planet, you know, and, and the you know mutual dependence of creatures on each other, and how everything, uh, how lots of things in nature happen sort of harmoniously and simultaneously. The fact that if we were, you know, um, an inch out of orbit in one way or the other, we would either freeze or burn. I mean, it's just it's just extraordinary when you think about it, right? So, um, so. Uh, 
I, that's I think what he's getting at here is that uh, um, uh, you know uh, there's something miraculous about the about the creation of the world. It ha- according to Rabbi Tanhuma, um, it, it has to be the product of a of an entity, a cre- a, a, a being uh, that is able to do wondrous things. Yes. It's almost like uh, he's referring to intelligent design. Yeah. To a certain yeah. He wouldn't have called it that. No. Yeah, because they didn't have creation. Uh, they didn't have they evolution. Didn't have debates about it. They didn't have <laughs> debates about it. To them, that, that's what. That's how creation happened. Was intelligent design. Um. um yeah. Um, now, if you ask me, I'm not. Uh, well, uh, well, the, the term intelligent design and what people mean by it is is very loaded. But I would, what I would say is um, that there was um, uh, uh, intelligence uh, in place uh, in the. Uh, um, eh, let me rephrase. Actually, I'm not going to go down that. I'm actually not going to go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> not go down yeah. um, this is not evolution. Yeah. yeah I'll, um, I'll just throw out. I, I'll admit it, I buy into deistic evolution, or theistic evolution. Which means? I believe that uh, Hashem created creation. Evolution was the tool that God created Earth and uh, the creatures, including us with. More, yeah. than I, more than I literally believe that God took some dust right. and made a human being out of it. Right. So, um, what, and I, I actually, so I think I think I believe something similar and I, I actually may even go a step further and say Not that, a literal right. I would say that, I would say that, uh, I believe that God is involved in the evolutionary process as well. Um, you know, one of the areas of, of great mystery to science is why, um, it, you know, first of all is how. Uh, how mutations happen in the first place, uh, why certain adaptations succeed and certain adaptations fail, um, you know, and, and, and otherwise, like, you know, um, why it is that my arm is where my arm is and my leg is where my leg is and that I, all those things are actually kind of mysteries to science, uh, might always be mysteries to science because they kind of, uh, they, they ask the kinds of questions that science isn't designed to answer. Um, and so, you know, to me, I, I don't know if it's intelligence per se, but, but I think that, uh, that, that I, 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 I see God in that process, um, of, uh, of, of the development of species and, uh, you know, mutations and adaptations and things, um, but you're right. But this, but this midrash, I think, is uh, is is offering something a little bit more uh, heavy-handed than that, right? That uh, that 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 because of what God is, God is the only uh, entity capable of creating uh, the kind of world that we have and the kind of creations that we have. Okay, let's. Um, we have a few more minutes. Let's let's keep going a little bit. Uh, uh, unless other people have other questions or comments about that, we're now moving on to another uh, idea. Any other questions or comments about that part? All right, let's go on to the next. When David, we keep reading. When were the angels created? Rabbi Yoch, 
Yohanan said the angels were created on the second day, just as it says in Psalms uh, 104, verse 4, he sets the rafters of the upper chambers in the water, creating the sky in the upper waters, which God does on the second day. And then it is written, he makes the winds his messengers or his angels. Rabbi Hanina said, the angels were created on the fifth day, where it's written, and let the bird fly, ye opheth, across the earth. And in Isaiah 6, 2, it is written, and with two wings, he, the seraphic angel, seraphic angel, seraphic angel, excuse me, would fly, ye opheth. Rabbi Luliana Bart, Tavrin said in the name of Rabbi Yitzchak, whether according to the opinion of Rabbi Hanina or whether according to the opinion of Rabbi Yohanan, all agreed that they were not created on the first day so that they could not say that the angel Michael stretched out the south end of the sky and Gabriel the north end and the Holy One, blessed be he, Measured, measured out the middle. Rather, as it says in Isaiah 44, 24, I am God who makes all and who alone stretches out the heavens with only myself. Me, E.T., who with me is written, who partnered with me in the creation of the world. Another All right, actually, let's just let's pause there because we're going to go on to another thought. Okay, there's there was a lot there. So what's what's going on there? We're trying to decide what day the angels were made. Good. Okay. Uh, what are the various opinions? Well, one says on the second day because that's when uh, the waters and the sky were separated. If I'm interpreting this right. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay, and so uh, and so what? When does it mention specifically when the winds came into being, or is that just assumed to be part of when the waters came? He said he makes the winds Right. Yeah. So when, let's when look God at let's command the winds to start blowing. Let's let's look at what happens on the second day. Okay, so the second day starts in Genesis uh, uh, chapter. Uh, 1 verse 6. Okay, so uh, God says, uh, Let there be a division uh, between the waters or within the waters. Mavdil bein mayim lemayim, as a distinct something that separates water from water. Or let there be a firmament between the waters. So something that separates uh, water from water. Vyas Elohim So God made the firmament. Vyavdel ben Mayim ben Hamayim. And so he's Vyavdel ben Hamayim asher mitachat larakia. And so distinguish uh, from the water that was uh, underneath the firmament. Uvena Mayim asher me'al larakia v'yichain. And uh, from the water that was above the firmament, and it was so. V'yikralim larakia shemayim. And so God called the firmament. Uh, the sky, vayir vayiboker yom sheni, right, and then that was the evening, and that was morning, and a second day. Um, so, uh, so, it, it, so the, on the second day, God made the firmament, uh, and uh, and so in Psalms, 
um, I guess it's, uh, it's, it's understanding the creation of the firmament as having, uh, or the Midrash understands Psalms is implying that the creation of the firmament happened because God sort of like uh, um, uh, uh, breathed out wind uh, to separate, the, that's how God separated the waters together. Um, uh, right, how uh, right. Um, sorry, to really understand this, we need to look at the passage from Psalms, I think, um, which is Psalms 104. Yeah. You know, I'm not. Maybe David will find it and uh, and and let you know. Psalms 104. Yeah, 12:30 in there. Yeah, that's exactly where I'm going. Okay, good. Okay, I'm almost there myself. Verse four. Okay, Psalms 104, verse four. Um. Um. Uh. What's that? Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this 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 whole psalm uh, we um, is the psalm that we recite on Rosh Chodesh. Um, ah, yeah. Um, right. So, Barchin uh, Nafshiyat uh, Zadonai. Right. Bless, bless my soul, uh, O Lord. Bless my soul. Adonai Elohai Gedalta Meod. Right. Lord God, you are very great. Hod uh, v'hadar lavashta, you've uh, uh, donned glory and majesty. Ote or ke salma, you uh, 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 cover light, cover like drape yourself with light like a garment. Noteshamayim kiriya, you stretch out the heavens like a curtain. Hamikare b'mayim al yotav, you you give you make a roof for your upper chambers with water. Um, ha. Hasam uh, avim uh, uh You make the clouds your chariot. Hamelech al kanfe ruach, and you walk on the winged wind, or you cause yourself to walk on the winged wind. Uh, very poetic kind of language here. Osem alachav ruchot. He makes the winds his messengers. Right, but the word malach also means angels. Right. Um, Mishartav esh lohet, and uh, the the flaming fire, uh, his uh, his intent, his attendants. Uh, so mishartav uh, can also mean uh, angels, right? Like malachay hasharet, right? The the uh, we say on Shabbat. Yasad eretz al mechoneha, you uh, establish the earth on its foundations. Bal timot olam ba'ed, right? It'll never it'll never totter, as Nancy says. They'll never ever totter. Um, so there's, they saw a connection between the winds and uh, the angels. Right. Um, you're saying so the middle, other Middle Eastern cultures, there's a connection between the winds and spirits or angels or jinn or demons. Are you asking or are you telling? Telling. Yeah, yeah. There is a, so I wonder if it's, if they were just reflecting common culture in the Middle East at the time. Could be. Or if that gave that gave rise to that common belief in the Middle East. 
Guess we don't. Yeah, is, you know, which, which is the chicken and which is the egg or whatever. Uh, uh, I, I, it's hard to opine on that. Um, um, uh, you know, but but I, you know, I wonder. Um, well, first of all, I mean, like you know, uh, I think it's worth noting that I don't think that Psalms means what it's saying in the way that. Uh, Rabbi Yochanan takes it to mean. So I don't think that the the pshat, the basic meaning of Psalms here, is that God makes uh, the winds uh, uh, his angels, uh, or made angels out of the winds, or something like that. Um, I think it's sort of using poetic language to say that you know all these sort of like natural forces are expressions of divine greatness, right? So the winds are God's messengers, right? Um, uh, you know the 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 earth is so uh, firmly established, right? Um, you know er, everything is a is a manifestation of God's glory. I think that's the function of the psalm, the thrust of the psalm. Uh, the midrash is is flipping it, right? Is is reading it midrashically, uh, is saying uh, it's not that the the winds are are God's messengers, uh, but God made the angels from the winds, right? Or of the winds. Um, uh, or really, ruchot here is like the is directions, right? So, um, uh, so you know, so in other words, uh, you know, as as God is uh, separating the water from water, uh, in all directions, God is uh, making angels as well, right? Uh, in, in that in that context. Uh, okay. So anyway, second day. Uh, is Rabbi Yochanan? That's when the angels were created. Uh, Rabbi Hanina has a different opinion. What's Rabbi Hanina's opinion? Oh, we're 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 over time. Yeah, um, over time. I'm sorry, uh, I lost track. Um, uh, okay, let's just the the punchline here, right? Is uh, is uh, you know we we care about angels. We care about the creation of the angels, primarily. I think to show that. To Franklin's point about uh, you know which came first, God or the Torah, uh, the the midrash here wants to make sure that you know that nobody helped God with creation, which I think is actually a refutation of that first midrash. Right, the first midrash says that the Torah helped God with creation. This midrash says nothing helped God with creation. Right, God created the angels after the angels would be the only thing that would be able to help God with creation, and they were they were later. Right, God created the angels. Right? Nobody was with God to create the world. God did it God's self. Um, all right, so we're going to stop there, and then we'll pick up uh, um, uh, with the another interpretation uh, next week.